Hey everyone, past guest to the show Kelly Fraser just released a new album, and if you stick around till the end of the program, you'll get to listen to one of the songs. You are listening to Share a Slice with Sean. On this episode of Share a Slice with Sean, I'm thrilled to have on the program Dylan Brody. Now, Dylan has garnered the praise of the likes of Robin Williams, George Carlin, and David Sedaris. He is an author, playwright, past comedian, but first and foremost, Dylan is a premier humorist and storyteller. He's contributed to NPR radio, he's been on serious satellite radio comedy, And in the past, he's even written for Jay Leno on The Tonight Show. He's been on A&E and Fox TV. And uh, he has six comedy CDs to his name. And they're all available, of course, over there on iTunes and wherever you get your your CDs. Um, Dylan has shared the stage with legends like Adam Sandler, Dennis Miller, Jerry Seinfeld, Norm MacDonald... And amazingly, he's here with me now to share some wisdom and wit about his life and uh, to tell some amazing stories along the way, too. So it's with great pleasure that I welcome Dylan Brody. Dylan, thanks so, so much for being on the program. Thanks so much for having me on the program, Sean. I look at your website and I'm just basically... I don't even know where to start. I mean, you've been doing writing. You do martial arts. You're uh, I do. You've done plays. I mean, you were a stand-up comedian for a long yes, time. Yes, I was. Yep. A- and now you are a uh, purveyor of uh, fine words and phrases, which means you you do more of a like a raconteur sort of humorous kind of thing on the stage. That's exactly right. It's long-form storytelling. If it were 1958. I would still be considered a comic, but due to the four to one laugh per minute ratio required by modern television, stand-up comics are expected to do that kind of fast-paced one-linerism perpetually when they're performing. And I found that with my current iteration in my career, uh, with the long-form storytelling, if I am presented as a comic, then people are deeply disappointed. But if I am presented as a humorist and storyteller, then they go, oh, oh, that's interesting. And then they're able to follow the the longer thoughts. What what really happened is that I quit smoking pot <laughs> and was able to hold a longer thought. And you did this pot thing, what, back in the yes. 70s and the 80s? I was Well, I started in the 80s. I started smoking pot in the 70s. <laughs> uh, I was stoned from 1978 to 1998 literally stoned the whole time. That's not true. There was one year that I stopped smoking pot early on. uh, And then a a girlfriend with whom I was madly in love broke up with me and I started again. So yeah, I was stoned that whole time. And I was a comic, a proper comic doing jokes from 1981. I did my first open mic in New York until about 95, 94, 95. I will say this, I recently 
headlined a comedy club in upstate New York, which I don't usually do anymore. I had two last year. I did a, a fundraiser. I headlined a fundraiser at Comic Strip Live in New York City. And then uh, more recently this year, I, I headlined uh, Comedy Works up at uh, Saratoga Springs, the town I grew up in. And I think I've figured out how to make what I do work in comedy clubs. Uh, I have some pieces, some stories that are inherently funny enough and consistently funny enough and fast paced funny enough that they function as if they were stand up material. But even in that circumstance, I like to be very much branded as and introduced as humorist and storyteller because it allows people to know what they're getting into beforehand. Um, so, yeah, I was a, I was doing stand up for a solid. What, what what does that come to? Whatever I just said, 81 to to 90, 95, 96. Yeah, in there somewhere. I did like 15 years as a yeah. comic and did some television and did a lot of touring and hated myself a lot. <laughs> and it took a lot for me to stop doing it. Uh, when I, I say that I stopped doing it when I quit smoking pot, but that's not true. I had really backed off of the standup uh, when the depression had hit me and the pot was no longer properly medicating against it. So I was shifting to writing and figuring out who I was from the time that Carson retired. In one year, a bunch of things happened that sort of broke my comedic heart. Carson retired, and he had been my goal, right? You wanted to be on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson if you were a comic. Mm -hmm. uh, Jay Leno took over the show full time, and I had written for Jay Leno for a while on his Monday night shows when he was uh, the guest host every Monday. So being on the show with him didn't feel like a big goal. That wasn't something I really wanted to do. So that goal was taken out from under me. Also, there had been this huge comedy boom and I was featuring and then I was starting to headline and a manager had said, all you need to do is get one national TV spot and you'll be headlining every club you go to. And then I got a national TV spot and sent that tape. Uh, I hope that uh, siren is not bothering your recording. That's okay. Okay, thank you. Uh, it just gives you a sense of the kind of neighborhood I live in. <laughs> it's 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 not a crap neighborhood, but it's crap neighborhood adjacent. At least you have police, right? It's true. I did the national TV spot, and the comedy boom ended the following month, mm -hmm. like abruptly. So I had finally gotten a national TV spot. I sent the, the tape off to my manager, yeah, and uh, he got me a bunch of featuring gigs. And I said, "What happened to I can headline everywhere now?" And he said, oh, yeah, uh, 964 <laughs> clubs across the country just closed. Wow. And so it was. It just felt like I was spinning my wheels and exhausting myself. And the depression wasn't lifting at all. So uh, I sort of pulled back from that and focused on my writing and began studying martial arts and went into therapy and eventually re-emerged from the chrysalis my wings spreading and my verbiage expanding into my current iteration as a purveyor of fine words and phrases. And uh, you can hear that I begin to do my most pompous voice uh, when I when I speak of it. Yeah, and you started this transition and also you released a book about your uh, actually it wasn't about your depression. It was about it was a guidebook. It is about depression. 
Yeah, it's the Modern Depression Guidebook available at Amazon.com at this time, re- released by Miniver Press. Um, the the Modern Depression Guidebook is a uh, a guide in how to get the most out of your depression. Right. Uh, I this was actually at the very beginning. I wrote it at the very beginning of the the time when I was starting to pull out of stand up, and and spiral. My mood was spiraling downward like Larry Flint at the Guggenheim, <laughs> and I uh, realized that. I, I had always believed that depression in me was an indication that I was about to write something uh, and that somehow it was part of my process and that I couldn't possibly be productive without. I'd really romanticized the hell out of my depression. And I thought it would be very funny to write a book that was about how to get your, your darkest possible blues and your deepest possible lows that, you know, you've never done anything right in your life. You may as well do the depression right, and here's a book to help you. It's a self-help satire. Uh, and I, I dove as deeply into the details of depression as I experienced it and pulled all the humor I could out of it. It was released originally by Authorium, uh, uh, an ebook company out of, out of London. And uh, they released it, I want to say, eight or nine years ago something like that and then they released it again and when they re-released it i'm gonna say three augusts ago it wound up coming out uh in a re-release with you know the press push and the new cover art in the same month that robin williams committed suicide and that was a difficult thing for me i I had a blurb from robin so when people googled robin williams depression they found their way to me yeah and that was a little bit heartbreaking uh to feel as though i might be somehow profiting on robin's death and th- and now it's out in print which is how it was intended to be to begin with and i think the print edition is just beautiful i heard a previous interview you did uh on the nato sessions and it was very powerful all about that book and all about your trip through depression i know that personally i think i've kind of i undiagnosed depression so kind of i've got that kind of man man sadness too where i i just yep. break up crying for no reason at times and i i started trying to say okay sean i'm gonna try to be way more positive in my life and you know what i found i found that all my friends that i made while i was caustic and cynical and depressed actually didn't like that yeah it's so weird you know, it's 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 a bizarre thing that, particularly when I was depressed, I would not have believed feasible. But you make these shifts, and at first you have to do them consciously, and it's partially, you know, make-believe, and you feel like you're lying all the time. And then as you begin to get the, the feedback from the person you're pretending to be, you begin to feel more and more like that person. And it becomes less and less of a lie. The, the our ability to consciously evolve is remarkable. It's part of what my a lot of my current work is about now. I'm realizing uh, I am convinced that we are facing a desperate race between humanity's capacity for self destruction yeah. and com- uh, humanity's capacity for evolution. And we've done a great deal to diminish our own capacity for evolution over the last several centuries. 
And part of what I am striving to do in almost all of my work now is flip epigenetic triggers in as many people as I can and inspire people to be the best possible version of themselves, the most intellectual, the most exploratory, the most curious, the most expansive selves they can be. Because I think only when we all begin to strive for our greatest possible potential, only when we each begin to do so, can we as a, as a society, as a species, really free ourselves and reach our, our collective potential and move forward into the world as a learning, evolving species again, as opposed to a, a consuming and uh, self-absorbed species. Even a few months ago, if I heard that, I would be saying to myself, Oh man, what what a, what a bunch of jerk. Yeah, or, or what a bunch <laughs> of new age hooey pooey. Man, come on. But there's no way I'm ever gonna get out of this if I keep being cynical. I, I got it. It's like you have to kind of like fake it till you make it. You have to you have to exercise yeah. this muscle in your brain that you, you deserve it, that you can do it. Yeah, and it's and it's not easy. For years, this is a very recent development for me. Uh, for years, I believed when I heard artists and particularly singers and especially uh, artists and performers who are religious and talk a lot about God, that just makes me uncomfortable. Um, because I'm, I'm, as you may or may not know, I'm so thoroughly an atheist that when people tell me they believe in God, I don't believe them. <laughs> but when I heard people talk about how I have this gift and I felt I had to share it with the world and bleh, 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 I just, it made me, it made my skin crawl because all I could think is, no, you are as narcissistic and desiring of attention as I am. That's why you do it. Don't give me that nonsense. And I have a, a success coach now who talks a lot about the idea that that which comes easy for us may be the thing that other people see as being of incredible value. Yeah. And that began to niggle in my brain a little bit. And then she told me to reread, and I, I had read it, I think, in high school and hadn't been prepared for it yet. But I reread Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. And there was stuff in it that was so profoundly perspective changing for me that I began to realize, you know, I do have a, a an unusual skill with, with language. That's not to say I learn other languages well. I pretend to speak other languages well. But I mean that I, I put words in order very well. I create poetry. I create lyrics. I create plays. I can use words to create scene. I can use words to create image. I can do a great deal with words. I can write jokes and so on. Um, that this is a level of talent that I think not many people have. And if there's something that I want to do with that talent that nobody else that I know can do and certainly nobody else is doing, then that becomes my reason for being a member of the species. 
And it is my responsibility to do it as well as possible. And if I inspire one person, that's great. And if I inspire a hundred people, that's better. And if I change the damn world, that's best. But what really matters is that my life begins to take on meaning beyond getting attention and being loved and making a living. I'm quite atheistic too, okay? So I grew up Roman Catholic. I even went through the stage where I wrote an angry atheist blog for a few years. So I, I went through all the stages and the world itself doesn't have any coherent meaning in itself. I really do believe that uh, it's up to us, uh, if we want to be happy, to get as much out of it as we can, to basically to attach as much meaning to it as, as it can. Because in the end, it is our meaning. I mean, it's yeah. in us. I urge you, if you haven't, I urge you to read the Viktor Frankl book. Um, okay. it's, it's very short read. And in the first, about a, a quarter of the way in, you're going to be thinking, why did he give me this? He knows I'm depressive. But then as you get through it, you'll understand that it's much bigger than, than what's happening at the beginning. Also, there's a really fascinating thing in it. There's a, uh, a form of therapy. I've been through lots of therapy in my life. And he talks about logotherapy, which is about ideas. Mm-hmm. And I had never heard of it before. And... I realized that it is a fascinating and possibly incredibly powerful form of therapy that has virtually been forgotten by the psychotherapeutic world in which rather than focusing on the past, rather than dealing with what happened to me before that has caused me to believe this, which is really the basis of Freudian psychotherapy and to a large degree Jungian psychotherapy, and ultimately cognitive psychotherapy, which is the big deal now through all the insurance companies because <laughs> uh, it can be limited in time. Yeah. Right? Cognitive psychotherapy is you think about, you, you talk about this thing that is a problem, and you make a conscious decision to just do things differently and think about things differently, and everything changes, right? And you do 10 sessions, and then they can stop paying your bill. Logotherapy is really about reframing from the past to the future. It is not what has affected me. It is where do I want to go? How do I want to get there? How do I take meaning from what I have experienced that will feed my ability to move forward? How do I treat the ideas as more important than the feelings? And it's, it's fascinating. Uh, and I, I suspect I will be writing something about it soon. Until then, I will just blither about it on podcasts. <laughs> that's that's good. I mean, podcasts are, are where it's at for the blithering, so it's all yeah. it's all good. Uh, speaking of books, and I mean just words, uh, you know, logos, yes. the word. Um, I think that we would be cheating my listeners if we didn't get some kind of sample of of what it is that you do. Uh, it would would it, you be up to maybe telling a story or, or something yes, along those actually, lines? Yes, there's one that's been in my head recently that I haven't told in a while. So this will be a new version of a story that I am very fond of and I'm going to have to work up properly very soon. It's called Blooming Unlikely. Okay, cool. 
this story begins before you realize the story has begun because it begins with the end of the previous story, a story that would not be worth telling, would not be worth remembering even were it not for the fact that its end is this story's beginning. This story begins when the girl comes home with a stick in a vase, which she presents as a gift with more enthusiasm than you feel a stick in a vase could possibly warrant. She tells you it is a psychic orchid that it can only bloom in the presence of true and real and lasting love. And you say, oh, because you don't want to be a dick. And also because you want just a little bit to believe that such things might exist in reality. She tells you that when it blooms, it will be the most beautiful purple flower you have ever seen in your life. And you say, oh, because still you don't want to be a dick. And also because the truth is you've been trying to find ways to break up with the girl for some time now. So if the stick in a vase blooms into a perfect purple flower, it will mean that it was not psychic at all. It is just an orchid with a really good PR department. But in fact, it doesn't look like a psychic orchid or a regular orchid. It looks like a stick in a vase. And then she tells you how much a stick in a vase cost her on your credit card. <laughs> so you can no longer not be a dick. And you say, you spent 300 fucking dollars <laughs> on a stick in a vase, and then there's a fight. And the fight lasts a while, and then there is an apology, even though you're pretty certain you didn't do anything wrong. And then there is kissing, and then there is sex. And you put the stick in the vase on your kitchen table, and the following morning, and the morning after that, and the morning after that, as you drink coffee... And she eats toast over the Formica tabletop. You do not mention the stick in the vase. You pretend not to notice that it remains a stick in the vase, that it does not bloom. And most of all, you pretend that you did not find the receipt showing that she spent more than twice as much as she told you she had on the stick in the vase. And on the day that she explodes and tells you that you are not romantic enough, are not spontaneous enough, are not interesting enough, and are not funny enough, then the day that she throws everything that she keeps of hers in your apartment into her knapsack and storms out and slams the door more than anything else, it is a relief. Even if it does leave the apartment feeling a little bit empty, a little bit lonely, you find you have begun speaking to the stick in the vase. You walk past it and say, hey, how am I doing? It never answers and it never blooms because it is a stick in a vase. But it cost more than $600, so it doesn't feel right just to throw it out. Then one afternoon, you leave the apartment. You go to the Lambros Diner late in the day, the Lambros Diner where they make an amazing tuna melt and a terrible cup of coffee and you go there for an amazing tuna melt and a terrible cup of coffee and that's when you see the girl not the girl who brought you the crappy gift the girl the girl you have already begun to think of as the girl she's sitting in a booth and talking to a man what the man looks like doesn't matter nothing matters except the girl 
She is beautiful. She is too beautiful. She is much too beautiful. She has hair the color of perfect girl hair. She wears a fingerless glove on one hand, the kind that hackers wore in 1990s movies when they sat in very cold rooms filled with large humming servers. On the other hand, she does not wear a glove. She wraps that hand around her coffee cup for warmth as she sips her coffee. And when she sips her coffee, her lips press together and the corners pull back just a little bit as she swallows. She is quirky. She's not pretentious quirky. She doesn't collect antique umbrellas or quote mom's Mabley. She is just I take off one glove so I can feel my coffee cup quirky, and that is exactly the right amount of quirky. You try not to seem as though you are staring at her, and after a minute or two, it begins to feel as though she is trying not to stare at you as well, although that may be a figment of your hopeful imagination. She may just not be staring at you. Eventually, you have finished your tuna melt. And you have had far too much terrible coffee. So you sadly leave the Lambrose Diner. You are halfway home when you realize you are chilly. And three things occur to you at once. One, you have left your jacket at the Lambrose Diner. Two, you would rather leave your favorite jacket at the Lambrose Diner than have this woman think you are bumbling or forgetful. And three, you have not turned around. You go back to your apartment, you go inside, and you do not realize until sometime later that you do not ask the psychic orchid how you're feeling. You do not ask the stick in the vase how you're doing today because you know exactly how you're doing today. You are still chilled from the cold, but you're a little bit sweaty. You're excited and frightened, and you feel as though all of it means that something important is happening or has just happened or is about to happen. You wander around the apartment, feeling as though there is something you should be doing, not knowing what it is when a knock comes at the door. You know at the time, but you do not admit to yourself that you know, because to admit that you know and to be proven wrong would be much too painful, but you know it is the girl. It is the girl you open the door. It is the girl she holds out your jacket. She says, you left this at the Lambrose Diner. I hope you don't mind. I found your business card in the pocket. You want to say... You are the most beautiful girl I have ever seen. You want to say, I was in love with you the moment I saw you. You want to say everything you have ever thought about and have her understand it. But what comes out of your stupid mouth is, my address isn't on my business cards. She says, I googled the phone number. And you don't know what to say then. You You didn't know that was possible, and you don't know your lines. You don't know what comes next. And as you begin to fear, because her focus slips away from your eyes, that you have ruined the moment, that you have lost the connection, that it is all going away, and you will never have this woman in front of you again, her focus shifts beyond you. And she says, that is beautiful. 
and you turn following her gaze to see coming from the vase on your kitchen table the most beautiful perfect flower you have ever seen in your life you see proof that a magical reality might just exist here in your world in the gaze of this girl and you think to yourself this might be the beginning of a story well worth telling that's great thank you sir thank you that wasn't too bad for not having done it in over a year i don't know if you can tell me this because you know magicians tricks and all that sort of thing but i just i'm just thinking about that because you, you tell it back again and it sounds like i'm sort of enveloped in a novel or something that's happening oh good you know how you kind of lose track of reality of what's around you in the room and you just you're in the words so oh i hope so oh, yeah good thank you i mean obviously you don't memorize the words that's crazy but i mean when you're telling the stories are are you seeing a movie in your mind that you're describing well there's a couple of things on this first of all this piece, uh, the one that I just did, is different from any of my other pieces for several reasons, uh, in, just in terms of literary structure. And we can come back to that. And Paul Provenza once said that I, I treat comedy as literature, and I love that description of what I do. And that piece is not particularly comedic. It's far more in the world of, of literature. There are some things that I do genuinely have memorized, particularly the shorter, funnier pieces. I need to have them word for word because it's about jokes being perfectly constructed. Although even there, I will sometimes get something wrong and I'm facile enough with the language and comfortable enough with performance that if that happens, I'm able to, to go back and pick up what's needed for the callbacks. I'm able to make adjustments on the fly if I need to. Many of the stories, I just know them well enough that I'm just telling them. And many of them are to a large extent, true. Mm -hmm. So it's really just talking about what happened that day. And I know the beats of the story well enough. I know what I have embellished and what I have restructured and why well enough that I know what needs to be done. And again, I have a talent for, for the language. So I'm able to overburden words with meaning. I'm able to milk two or three different possible interpretations or two or three implications or sometimes seven out of a single sentence. And I know how to build the rhythms and some people will get them at one level and some people will get them at all, you know, seven. But uh, the fact that they're all there allows it to be an engaging experience for the listener. Now, when you say, when you're listening, you lose track of where you are and you're just in the world. That's partly because I'm playing with neuro-linguistic programming, particularly in Blooming Unlikely, which is, first of all, a poetic rhythm. The whole mm -hmm. piece is structured in a poetic rhythm. And even though I don't have a, you know, a script in front of me and it's not exactly the same each time and probably later I'll go, oh, I left out that whole segment about, I don't know what that would be right now, but... I'm sure there are segments that I just left out when I did it for you. I know what the rhythm is. So I know how to get to the next beat, even if it's not the one I had originally intended. And it'll continue to have that driving engine. More importantly in that story, 
It's second person present tense. That story is not about me. That story is about you. The story begins before you realize the story has begun. Uh, you go to the Lambros Diner. And it's a weird structure in a story to tell the person that it's happening to them. But as a result of that, it puts them into the driver's seat, even as I am lulling them with the rhythm into the experience of the story. Also, present tense makes you actively involved right now as a listener. Right. In a way that past tense doesn't, that gives distance. So in that particular story, there's all sorts of stuff that I'm doing that is making it a cinematic experience in the mind. It is not just allowing the listener to project him or herself onto the hero of the story. It's actually causing the listener to take up the role of the hero in the story. And with that story, there's basic beats and there's basic structural beats that I know I have to get through. I need to set up the, the stick in the vase and what it represents. Right. And in that same moment, I have to set up that the story is not about the girl who gives me this, but that uh, gives you this, but that can't be so heavy handed that people feel as though they're being given a pre-ramble. I literally start the story before people know the story has started. Because I start with this story begins before you know the story has started. It's already started. I asked, were you replaying a movie in your head? Because it's like you're directing a, a film or a, a, oh, while telling it to me, right? So you're setting that. up all the plots. It's like you're choreographing the whole thing. Um, a joke, just a, a single joke, a one-liner is structured the same way that a good short story is. There are these elements that are hung in place so that when the final turn is given, the listener puts the pieces together for him or herself. Right. Really, the laughter at any joke is ultimately, aha, I see what you did. That's all it is. It's a person realizing how smart they just were to figure all of that out. I have a new joke that I love that does that particularly well. Don't let me forget to come back to that. Um, but with a story like this, and with any properly structured story, what's happening is that there are these pieces that are being hung in place so that in the last moments of the story, the coin can drop. Right. In a novel, it's sort of a repeat refrain, longer form version in which in the last couple of chapters, all the pieces fall into place. But there are so many suspensions going on that it takes longer for them all to come together to allow the point of the writer to be made. But in the case of a short story or a joke, it's just condensed in time. There's a joke, the, the joke that I just told you not to let me forget. This is my favorite kind of joke because it's a joke where the, the listener writes the joke in their head. I've reached the point in my marriage at which I suggest sex and she tells me what time it is. <laughs> now, what's beautiful about that joke is that it sounds like it's just a non sequitur. But then when you run the dialogue for yourself in your head, 
Yeah. You realize what the subtext is. It took me a while for it to catch up. I could feel yes. myself catching up. Yes. That is a joke that I love and a kind of joke that I love. It's confessional a little bit. It's intimate. And yet it is entirely universal. There are some jokes that require that, that depend wholly on shock value. And that's really the only joke. That's the only place the humor comes from. But this story in particular, there are all of these pieces that need to be hung in place. There is the cynicism of a relationship that's falling apart that causes one to want to believe, but not wholly believe in magic in the world. There is being freed from that relationship and being alone. And that diner sequence in which you are sitting in the diner, looking at someone and trying not to look like you're looking at them is universal. Everybody knows that moment and that moment of missed connection, right? I am alone. I'm eating a tuna melt. Oh my God, she's beautiful. She's with a man. The man doesn't matter. I'm locked on her, right? And there's a couple of things in there. There's a linguistic trick that I do in it and a joke that I do, both of which are designed to mask the complexity of the emotional life I'm creating. She is beautiful. She is too beautiful. She is much too beautiful. Is a sequence that draws. It's almost like you were talking about a, a cinematic effect. Right. It's almost the frame closing in tighter on her. Right. Yeah. And and then a moment later, she has hair the color of perfect girl hair, which is in a piece like this. An admission that you are so in love that your capacity for language is failing. That's exactly right. Because when I heard that, I'm I'm like perfect girl here. Well, wait a minute. Like where where's the flowery word? What's what? Yeah. What's missing here? Something just no. fell. What's missing is that now we're fully in the moment and we're not intellectual. So by doing that, I've now got you locked on her and not thinking about the story you're thinking about my use of language you're thinking about what she looks like you are imposing your version of perfect girl hair on the image there's the quirky stuff that i set up that is all about how we fall in love with a person and then there's walking away there's realizing that something is going on the feeling of it all there is the residual resistance to magic. You know it is her, but you cannot admit that you know. Right? When the, there's a knock at the door and you know, but you cannot admit that you know. And at that point, I don't say you know it's her. You say, I say, you know, but you don't admit that you know, because to admit it and be wrong would be too painful. And I don't think there is a listener to the story who doesn't know what it is that you know. Right. And there is not a listener to the story who does not know what it is to deny one's knowledge for fear of disappointment. And from the moment that door opens, there is the allowance of magic in the world again. This is some pretty, like, advanced shit. I mean, this is why, you know, uh, uh, this sort of stuff would be in a theater. While, this is uh, why I quit smoking pot and bought cufflinks. <laughs> 
I mean, uh, this is theater wearing a suit kind of stuff, not, uh, you know, at the at the comedy store at 2 a.m. in front of uh, four people well, stuff. Certainly that story is. Yeah, if you want to hear some of the stuff that I do for that, I'm happy to do another short one for you. And even when I do the the comedy for an audience of drunk people stuff, it's still linguistically structured. It's still uh, carefully built storytelling. It's just a little bit more accessible with more jokes in it. More of the funny. Give us more of the funny. What I like about this is that when I listened to a previous interview you did, you mentioned that uh, there was a point where you were kind of realizing that you didn't want to just dish out these quick little jokes or you didn't want to do these jokes about tits and cocks and all that kind of stuff. You wanted to kind of up the game that way and stay funny. But at the at the beginning, you 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 felt the need to add the word "fuck" to everything, and just kind of. I did like... it when I was working. When I first started taking the stories out to clubs, because initially I was doing them on the radio, and on the radio, you're, it's just you with a microphone, and you send them out into the world, and it's fine. Um, and plus, NPR is the audience for my kind of stuff. Right. But when I thought, oh, I can take these out as live performance again, I was going out to workout clubs in LA, and I it wasn't just that I felt I needed to; I needed to. Oh, yeah. The audience would lose interest in me if I didn't add fuck to a story. And then if I put fuck in regularly enough, they thought I was very funny. <laughs> Robin Williams said it years ago, you know, cut to a dick joke, not buying the bullshit, get to a dick joke. There's a lot of easy ways of winning an audience back fast right. in a club. And it involves shock value, it involves vulgarity. It involve, involves all sorts of things that aren't part of the me that I'm comfortable being anymore. And when I, you know, when I was doing the, the road as a comic, I was a left-leaning machine gun four to one lap per minute ratio comic at the time when the right-wing rebels were really making it big. Uh, Sam Kinison, who wrote brilliant jokes, was writing jokes that ultimately said, blame the, the poor for their poverty, blame the victim for the crime. And Andrew Dice Clay was, you know, getting on Saturday Night Live with his nursery rhymes about what's in the bowl, bitch. And Tim Allen, who was TV clean, he was Disney clean, but his whole act was deeply regressive, gender normative, men are uncontrollable, grunting pig beasts, and women are shrill nags material that got him the, the two consecutive TV shows based on the idea that misogyny is never funny. That's... How I describe it, that wasn't the original pitch. <laughs> so for me to compete in that world with my left-leaning stuff under the Reagan and Bush administrations, I needed to be louder and angrier and more self-confident and bigger and broader than those guys. At the same time that I was presenting intellectually challenging material. Now there are a bunch of guys doing left-leaning stuff who are terrific and they're having wonderful careers. I was doing it at a time when it was not particularly popular. And because I was stoned all the time, I wasn't evolving. I wasn't figuring out how to really make what I wanted to say accessible to the mainstream world. I think what I'm doing now, while it is less obviously liberal while it is less obviously progressive political i think it's ultimately more progressive and more in line with my worldview 
because now I'm not saying, look, I can be dumb enough to make what I'm doing appeal to you guys. Yeah. Now I'm saying I'm going to make you guys keep the fuck up with me. Basically, the audience is going to laugh at it because it's funny. But at the same time, you're able to get them to open their eyes a little. I want to pitch a show. I have a pitch coming up at, at Comedy Central. And one of the shows I want to pitch to them is a show called You're Smarter, You're Welcome. Yeah. I want to work with Greg Proops, I think, on it. Although I'm already pitching a show for me and Greg, where each week we essentially, do you know Radio Lab on NPR? Oh, yeah. Who doesn't? I want to do a show where we tackle a topic each week through humor and laughter and joy. But each week is a different, highly intellectual topic. So, you know, it'll be a different philosopher one week, a, a single philosopher one week, or a physics theory one week. And whatever it is, we are coming at it, mining it for jokes. Think of the potential for uh, television, you know, that could be gained for that. We have at our disposal the most powerful tool for communication in the history of humanity. And instead of using it to educate and inform, we are using it to tell pro-status quo morality plays in 46-minute hours. Right, right. And we know that, that we're lying to ourselves. We know that the police are not always the good guys. They are not noble. They are not always seeking to protect the victim regardless of race or creed against the criminal who is never as smart as the police. We know that the bad guys do not always get their comeuppance. We know that the, the bad guys are not inherently evil. They're just people who think differently about basic moral structures than others. Like we know that it's more complicated than what we keep telling ourselves it is week after week in hour long television and sitcoms are even worse. Sitcoms tell everybody, yes, there may be conflict that comes almost always from some sort of a misunderstanding, but don't worry. Everything is fine. As long as at the end of the event, it, things are exactly the same as they were at the beginning, which by the way, things are, if you spent that time watching a sitcom <laughs> yeah. Or, or you're watching TV and there's like all those drug commercials and you're just like, what the hell's going on, man? It's well, that's nuts. the news. The news I've been, I, this is another thing that comes up over and over again and I haven't written it into something yet, but I say it all the time. Humans are hardwired because we used to be, you know, wild animals and we need to protect ourselves, right? We are hardwired to focus on what we perceive as danger. There's a bear and there's a cute fuzzy bunny. You got to look at the bear, right? Yeah. And the news is now largely financed by pharmaceutical advertisements for anti-anxiety medications. So the news, what we think of as what, what used to be journalism, what used to be its own separate economy from the rest of the network's entertainment product is now its own entity, its own entertainment product that is not designed to inform us. It is designed to sell us anti-anxiety medications. So they spend 24 hours a day going on television and saying, there's a bear coming up next where the bear is hiding. 
And now a word from Prozac. Right, right. Um, so I think that we're we're getting kind of close to the end here. I don't want to. I'm end sorry. It. Yeah, I know. Uh, but um, I, I think that we really want to talk about maybe some of your stuff that you've done because, like, uh, <laughs> we're coming to the end. Let's talk about something. <laughs> I mean, like you you have five comedy albums. I listened to your most recent, which was uh, I think it's um, goes electric. Oh. That's actually my sixth. I have five out with stand-up records. Yeah. And then with Rooftop Comedy, I have Dylan Goes Electric. That's the one. And also a, a video special uh, called More Arts, Less Marshall. I also now have a uh, another special, Dylan Brody's Driving Hollywood, on which my recent solo show was based uh, that I toured internationally with. That's called Dylan Brody's Driving Hollywood. That's currently streaming at nextupcomedy.com. And uh, something that is pretty close to straight ahead stand up called Corner of Starbucks and Christopher Street uh, that is largely about the, the struggle for marriage equality. And that is streaming at reverie.com, queerated entertainment. Um, and I was deeply honored, I really oddly deeply honored that they would run that special because it's it, that 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 streaming service is all about the lgbtqia community and i am not a member of the lgbtqia community i am just a strong supporter thereof and that they could see that the work i was doing was valid enough to fit into their humor scape was uh a, a real honor. Uh, uh, it was a little moving. Yeah, that's amazing. I haven't had a chance to catch those yet, but I, I definitely will. Well, take a what look. is wrong with you, sir? Yeah, you man. Spend all of your time looking at my work. <laughs> yeah, Ugh, I have to get back to that now. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Dylan, maybe it'd be great. Like, I know our our my listeners would love to hear this. Uh, if you could, maybe we could just end off the episode on one of your funnier stories. It'd be great and uplift us all. I would be delighted to. Oh, in fact, you know, here, here's what I'll do. I will do uh, anyone who is familiar with my work and, and really who isn't will know that a lot of my stories can be long and heavy and multi-textured shades of gray, like the prominent proboscis of the ponderous pachyderm. Uh, this piece to maintain that mammalian metaphor is a little more than a bit or two of gerbil fuzz, a, a beat or two of verbal jazz. It's a twist of the wit, a trick of the tongue, a tantalizing taste of linguistic terpsichore. Uh, call it, if you will, a pithy parcel of prosodic prestidigitation. And if you won't, you're an anti-semantic bastard. This is called, I like to support the arts. On my way home from a gig, I stopped at a convenience store to buy milk for my morning coffee to buy ice cream for my wife. As I walked from the car to the store, I was approached by an unemployed magician. He said, I got a quarter in my pocket. I can make it disappear. I got a quarter in my pocket. I can make it disappear. I said, show me. I watched him with the hungry eyes of a hunting hound. And I swear to you, ladies and gentlemen, all he did was snap his fingers. He said, it's gone. I said, where did it go? He said, check your pocket. I checked my pocket, and sure enough, there, amongst all my other loose change, a bright, shiny quarter. I said, how do I know this is yours? He said, it's from 1994. 
I said, no, it's from 1998. He said, yep, that's one of mine. I said, that's amazing. I returned it to him. He put it in his pocket. I said, do it again. He said, I never repeat myself. I never repeat myself. I said, show me another. He said, I will need a $10 bill. I said, all I have is a 20. He said, that will do. I handed him a $20 bill. He folded it up right in front of me. No alacadabra, no abracazam. When he unfolded it, it was a five. He returned it to me. I said, that's amazing too. Now change it back. He said, hey, if I could change fives into twenties, I wouldn't be out here working for tips. I said, I'm sorry. I didn't know I was supposed to tip you. I handed him the five. I went into the convenience store. I bought milk for my morning coffee. I bought ice cream for my wife. As I crossed from the store to my car, the unemployed magician approached another man in the parking lot. He said, I got a quarter in my pocket. I can make it disappear. I got a quarter in my pocket. I can make it disappear. I watched him with the hungry eyes of a hunting hawk. And I swear to you, all he did was snap his fingers. <laughs> yeah, it got me. I, I blew a piece of it. But I fixed it. It's all fine. <laughs> it's good. It's great. Thank you. Thanks Thank you. so, so much for being on the show, Dylan. Thanks for having me. And I would love to come back any old time you want, as long as you let me talk about all the fine products that people can buy at DylanBrody.com. Click on the Emporium. Will do. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. So that's about it for this episode. I'd like to really thank Dylan Brody for being on the program, and I'd like to encourage everybody to go to dylanbrody.com. Also, I'd like to thank past guest Tim Chismar for basically putting me in contact with Dylan Brody. Now, Tim actually is a producer of movies, usually in the horror genre, and uh, a really fun guy. He's also a comedian and a nudist activist as well. And uh, you can check out Tim's work over at timchismar.com. So as promised, here is a track by Kelly Fraser, who is a singer from the Arctic of Canada. That means that she's Inuk, and you'll be hearing parts of the song in the language which they speak up there. Inuktitut. And the name of the track is For You, and it's off her new album this year called Sedna. Thanks so much for listening, and I uh, hope you'll be back next time. Keep your chin up. <laughs> Smile. It's still a good life. Sun is shining for today. It's shining a perfect time to say, I would do anything. I would do anything for you. For you, for you. Yeah, I'm doing it all for you. For you, for you. I'm doing it all for you Another day, another dollar But for you, 
I'm doing it all for you. 